The HD Insights Podcast is brought to you by the Huntington Study Group. The Huntington Study Group is a nonprofit research organization dedicated to conducting clinical research in HD and providing critical training on HD to healthcare professionals. Funding for this podcast is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you and sponsorship grants from organizations like Genentech, Teva Pharmaceuticals, Neurocrine Biosciences, Vasinex, and Wave Life Sciences. Hello, and welcome to the HD Insights Podcast. I'm Kevin Gregory, Director of Education, Communications, and Outreach at the Huntington Study Group. Over the next 30 or 40 minutes, we're going to share some insights on Huntington's disease research from someone working to make a difference for those dealing with the effects of HD. Our goal with this podcast series is to introduce you to some of the amazing people behind the research. For this first episode of the HD Insights podcast, I had the pleasure of sitting down and talking with Dr. Daniel Clausen. Dr. Clausen is an associate professor of neurology at Vanderbilt University, and he's the director of the HDSA Center of Excellence Clinic at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. He's also the chief editor of our HD Insights publication. In today's episode, I really sit down and we talk through to get to know Dr. Clausen a little bit more, the person behind the science, behind the research, and I think you'll enjoy this episode and this interview with Dr. Daniel Clausen. Well, Dr. Clausen, uh, we appreciate you joining us today on this very first episode of the HD Insights podcast. And uh, I just want to kind of dive right into it and, and talk a little bit about your early career. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about what got you interested in neurology, and specifically, how did you end up in the Huntington's disease field? Yeah, thanks, uh, thanks, Kevin. I'm excited about this this podcast, and I'm hopefully uh, it'll it'll uh, have a good audience and be interesting to people. Um, so, my uh, own career, I actually started um, a career that was completely the opposite of neurology. I actually started as a uh, music major. I was a viola player. Uh, insert all the viola jokes you want to. But um, <laughs> I, I started off in as a music performance um, uh, major and played with symphonies around the southeast United States. And that was kind of my job. And then um, decided that I may want to do something different, um, and through a number of cr crazy, unusual experiences, uh, found myself in a, a research lab uh, under uh, mentorship of a professor who studied mitochondrial uh, genetics and metabolism. And so I was first introduced to, to neurology, per se, through that work where we were looking at patients that had neurologic uh, manifestations related to uh, mitochondrial uh, genetic abnormalities, and then um, kind of decided to go either do a PhD or an M MD, and I um, applied to medical school and got in, and so went to medical school, and I really found that the best teachers that I had were neurologists. I really enjoyed the field. Um, I thought that the patient population was fascinating, and I think in particular the um, patients that had um, neurodegenerative conditions manifesting with 
motor and cognitive dysfunction that really uh, really grabbed my interest. And so that's kind of how I started. And I went to do my training in, at the Mayo Clinic in, in Rochester, uh, Minnesota. Um, and I spent about four winters there um, and really got great uh, exposure to a wide variety of neurologic diseases. I really cut my teeth with understanding the intersection of neuroscience uh, and neurology, and then uh, did my postdoctoral training at the University of Virginia. And it was really there that I, I experienced Huntington's Disease Center of Excellence model of care. I worked with uh, Lynn Harrison there, and she really taught me a lot about the Huntington's disease population, all the way from genetic counseling visits to uh, late uh, stage HD, and um, became really uh, interested and passionate about Huntington's disease uh, through that experience. And then I was recruited to Vanderbilt, uh, primarily to uh, work with uh, building a research lab in cognition and, and movement with a focus on neuroimaging. And while I was here, we started a, a Huntington's disease uh, clinic. And it was my expectation that I may have about 50 patients or so in that Huntington's disease clinic, but it turns out that sometimes you're wrong. And our clinic has grown substantially over the last uh, about five or six years to where now we probably take care of about 400 patients and families uh, in the Middle Tennessee and surrounding regions um, and have gotten really involved with clinical research, um, investigator-driven research, and I really enjoy the collaborations with basic science and um, other specialties that really makes my job um, interesting from a uh, research perspective. Nice. Well, that's a, that's a pretty, uh, pretty interesting career move and, and, and path. So I got to go back to um, what you started out with, with your, uh, your musical career. Um, where, where are you with that now? Is that something you still, do you still play symphonies on occasion? How, how would you classify kind of your, your musician status at the moment? <laughs> so um, I still, well, I live in Nashville, so every second person in Nashville is a musician. Um, <laughs> I, have, I have one patient that jokes with me, he says that you know you live in Nashville when the violist in your chamber music group is also a neurologist. Um, <laughs> but we, yeah, so I still play, I play mostly chamber music now, so um, don't play in any symphonies, um, but I play in a string quartet, um, piano quartet, do some piano duets. Um, we, I probably play on average about once or twice a month. You know, everyone that I play with has jobs, and so we kind of try and find time in the evening when the kids go to bed and meet up at someone someone's house and, and play music. It's good. Yeah, once you once you start, you can't stop. Yeah, well, very nice. Well, that, and that's not the the only thing you play. Um, as well, your your Twitter bio um, refers to yourself as a, a frustrated golfer. Um, so <laughs> I, I got to ask, uh, frustrated by how you play, or uh... yeah, if you if, if if you want to um, learn humility, it's to take up the sport of golf. Um, but yeah, I do enjoy playing golf. I actually have two boys; they are ages uh, eleven and eight, and they both play a lot of golf. Uh, the eleven-year-old just beat me. Um, oh last boy. week, which is <laughs> yeah, which is a which is a problem, but yeah. So we play uh, here in in uh, in Nashville. Play golf, uh, and it's a great it's a great outlet. Uh, it's something that you always have to work on. 
it's a great a great sport for patients. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, so uh, you, you talked a little bit about you know uh, some of the folks that uh, you know that you've served in a, a in a mentorship capacity under. Um, who do you, if it's one of them or if it's somebody else, who do you, you know, most consider your mentor as, as far as the person that's really driven you to get to where you are now and the person that you've become professionally? Yeah, I, so I think, you know, mentorship um, changes over the time and it, it may be different in certain parts of your career. I mean, when I, as a, as a medical student, um, I certainly appreciated the mentorship of my uh, then chair, David Hess, who um, was a stroke neurologist who who really encouraged me to pursue a career in um, in in clinical research and applications of of clinical research to understanding patient problems. And you know, he was very instrumental in encouraging me to to do that and and teaching me about things like. K awards and, and career development awards, and giving me opportunities to get exposure to um, to learning about you know the pathway to independence. Um, and then when I was at Mayo, there's a number of people that really helped me a lot. Keith Josephs was a is, is a neurologist who um, really specializes in this intersection of motor and cognitive um, investigations of neurodegeneration and neuroimaging. Um, he was super helpful in, in kind of helping in, in getting my career uh, started. And then in Virginia, um, Lynn Harrison and, and Fred Wooden were amazingly helpful in um, giving me time and, and patient encounters to develop questions. And I developed really good collaborations with a neuropsychologist named Scott Wiley um, and other um, folks in, in University of Virginia. And then when I came to Vanderbilt, um, different folks in neuropsychologists named David Zald and neuroimaging uh, specialist Bob Kessler became very good mentors to me in terms of helping me start my lab, start um, you know, getting the early career development awards and, and progressing towards independence. So, um, and I think the other, the big thing from a Huntington's uh, perspective, we are on an HD Insights phone call, was really appreciating the mentorship of the HSG community. So when we started our HD clinic, um, we, we didn't really know what we were doing. Um, I mean, sometimes we still don't know what we're doing, but I really, I know one of the things we did early is we had people like Martha Nance, um, Mary Edmondson, Actually, come to Vanderbilt and and sit with us and and talk to our support group, talk to me personally about what do we need to do to get a clinic up and running. What do we need to have? And that was uh, really helpful from our Huntington's point of view. And I've actually found that one of the great things about the HSG is that you know when you're part of the HSG, you have instant access to uh, peer and um, uh, peer support and even mentorship uh, for for getting uh, your your work uh, started and going. And so I've actually still benefit from a lot of uh, mentorship from the HSG in regards to these uh, these kind of issues. It, well, it sounds yeah, I mean, it sounds like you've put a really strong emphasis on that that part of your career development. You know, mentors have obviously been a big 
component of what you've done. I'm assuming, and it sounds like, you know, from the work that you've been doing, you've kind of taken on that same role now, too. So, you, you know, you try and provide that level of mentorship to, to other people. What, what are some of the, the takeaways or the, the things that you focus on in your role to, to be a mentor to, you know, to the next generation to, that's coming up through the ranks? Yeah, I think, you know, I don't think you ask to become a mentor. It just kind of happens. Um, and um, I've certainly had the opportunity to work with really great junior investigators um, and try and, you know, help them along the path. I think from from my perspective, the, you know, the top three things that I can do for for junior investigators is, one, provide opportunities. So if they, they want to ask a question or they want to, um, you know, pursue um, an investigation uh, on a certain topic is give them the opportunities to do that, whether it's make their clinics um, focused on the patients that they want to enroll, get them access to, to data, get them um, access to research funds to get preliminary data, um, and be available for them to talk about some of the challenges with um, getting research started, I think. So that's that's really the main one. And I think, secondly, I think, is, is being available for them. Um, and so I try and, for my junior faculty members, have at least uh, once a week meeting uh, for at least a uh, half an hour. It doesn't have to be a long time. And we may talk about science. We may talk about challenges, um, you know, that they're having. We may talk about timelines. We may go over, you know, paper rejections or paper resubmissions or or grant re revisions and so you know make yourself um, available and I think the third big one is is realize that you have to be flexible and so not every uh, mentor mentee relationship is going to look the same you know there are different issues for different people along different stages of their academic journey and so I think I've learned you just have to be really flexible to know there's not a one-size-fits-all template. I mean, um, you know, sometimes people's uh, goals change uh, during um, their career. I mean, I'm certainly an example of that where, you know, if you'd asked me 20 years ago what I wanted to do, it probably didn't have much to do with neurology but more to do with, you know, playing music for a living. So I think people can change, and that's good, and you kind of have to just embrace that and help people kind of figure out how to do that. So... Uh, you know, mentoring is, is hard work because it, it does require time and it's not always rewarded, but um, I think it's actually probably one of the most um, personally uh, enjoyable parts of my job is seeing other people succeed and seeing people, um, you know, become uh, um, valuable members to uh, the community of patients that you're treating, the larger regional and national community of, of scientific discovery and and see people um, you know progress towards independence is a great um, it's just a really great um, opportunity again we're talking with dr. Daniel Clausen your research has focused a lot on the behavioral aspects of HD like impulsivity self-regulation action control can you tell the audience, uh, you know, some of the things that you've learned along the way in your work in that area? Yeah, so I would say, you know, my 
um, you know, my main entry into uh, clinical research was, was on the topic of self-regulation of behavior. And so one of the things that really um, interested me was in Parkinson's disease, when you give patients, you know, certain medications like dopamine agonists, you can see a, a marked change in a person's interest. You know, they become compulsively interested in gambling, shopping, uh, sex, um, eating, hobbies, and it was just, you know, you know, personally really fascinating to me that how a medication could really change someone's behavior. So I think early on in my uh, career, I, you know, trying to figure out ways to investigate that, I really benefited from uh, working with cognitive neuroscience scientists who uh, were uh, coming up with ways to assess action control, reward-based behavior, risk-taking behaviors, um, uh, and impulsivity. And so I started looking at that in Parkinson's and using medication design uh, studies where you'd take patients off their medicines and give them their medicines and seeing how it changes some of these uh, neuroscience-based measures. And then um, after that, I said, well, where, you know, how does this look in the brain? Where is this localized? Can I understand some of the biology? And so that led me to, to explore uh, neuroimaging methods that can assess these um, kind of biologic substrates to these behavioral changes. And of course, with Huntington's disease, it turns out that a lot of patients also have problems with impulsivity. Um, and we've noticed that in our clinic, especially in young, younger folks um, who will, will engage in high-risk behaviors, who perhaps will engage in um, addictive uh, behaviors, um, you know, it's not un infrequent that we will first meet our patient because they've been arrested or they've had some kind of run-in with the law. There's been some issue at school. And so that's really, you know, taking those um, techniques that have been developed in other populations and applying them to Huntington's disease is currently one of the ways that we're trying to do this. So we look at reward-based behaviors, risk-taking motor impulsivity, action control, and then the biologic substrates of that to understand how we can identify and hopefully treat uh, patients who have, have these changes. And so that's kind of how, in terms of Huntington's, I've been able to kind of take principles from other disorders or at least um, principles that were explored in other disorders and look at it in a Huntington's disease population. Mm -hmm. And how have you seen HD care evolve in, in your time running the clinic at Vanderbilt? You know, and an extension of that, how do you, you know, what do you see as the most important changes that are kind of on the horizon that the field has to be ready for? So in our, in our experience, you know, when, we, when I started, we were seeing a lot of patients that were motor manifest patients that maybe even more advanced patients where we would spend a lot of time, you know, going over um, how to control some of the motor symptoms they're having, the chorea, the dystonia, the gait instability. And I would, I would say that one of the biggest changes for us was really um, taking care of the family as a whole. I think that's really a, a, one of the biggest changes in the last four years that's, that's become really evident to us. So 
So one of the things that we emphasize in our clinic now is really family-based care. And that, that, that patient is certainly part of that family, but that there's a caregiver who may be having a lot of uh, emotional or cognitive or um, uh, financial challenges that may you know, impede the care that they're providing to their loved one. So how do we how do we look for after that caregiver, and then and then the, and the children I think is a big one. So how do we take care of kids who um, are watching a parent have manifest symptoms of Huntington's disease with the knowledge that they have a 50% chance of having that same gene? How do we help them cope? Uh, how do we understand uh, the stress that they're under? How do we provide um, constructive avenues for them to to deal with those issues and and be productive um, in school and yet still at the same time have all the stress of, of the chronic disease and, and the potential that they may or may not have of uh, this gene. So I think ultimately our, our, our team has gotten bigger since when we started and it's gotten bigger because we really want to take care of the whole family. So it, it's not uncommon for new patient visits to have seven or eight people in the room um, where we have the patient, but then we have sometimes the uncles and the cousins and, and, the, and the children. And so we have to learn as a team how to deal with all the challenges that that brings. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges is in genetic counseling. You know, if you disclose genetic counseling results to a patient when there are kids in the room and the kids are just learning about their risk for HD when that disclosure happens, that may not be the best way to do it. So, you know, thinking about ways to engage genetic counselors, social workers, neurologists, child neurologists, and that whole family-based care, I think that's been the biggest difference. It does make it challenging from a clinical management standpoint because you have a lot of different team members, sometimes in similar space. It's really hard in the uh, infrastructure of a hospital system to to tell an administrator that you really are not interested in just creating neurology return visits, but we've got to come up with other ways to get non-neurology care in a, in a certain area. And I think that's a shared challenge across multiple institutions, especially academic institutions, which tend to often be very inflexible in how to deal with these kind of changing healthcare dynamics. But I think going in the future, I really, I really foresee HD care to um, not be necessarily neurologic centric. I think it's going to be uh, team-based care where there are going to be different ways that you engage that team depending on the life cycle of HD in your experience. So if you're a child, you're going to engage a team very differently than if you're a young adult who's going to have, thinking about having children versus a person who's um, motor manifest with early chorea versus someone who may be wheelchair bound and, and, and is looking at assisted living or nursing home facilities. And so I think I think the future of HD is really looking at HD as a treatment of a disease, mm -hmm. treatment of a families instead of this kind of singular kind of specialty based care. Are there any areas in that, that team based concept that you see particular shortfalls in, whether it's the, the amount of uh, people getting into that area. I mean, you know, we can always use more neurologists, more specialists, more everything, but is, is there one particular area of concern to you at this point, you know, where if you had the opportunity to encourage somebody to 
follow this path, which which one would it be? Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I mean, my perception is that one of the biggest impediments is is the way we're currently reimbursed in, a, in the United States for care. I mean, we're reimbursed from a procedural or visit-based encounter. Um, and so I think we really need to think as a community, is that really the best way to deliver care to Huntington's disease? And there are certainly different examples of how you can get away from that kind of per visit, per E&M code, per procedure uh, reimbursement. And that, in that context, you know, I really, I really see a lot of need for people that are interested in neurodevelopment, whether it be counselors, pediatric neurologists, psychologists, really understanding the ideas of how does living with HD or living with a parent with HD, how does that affect the development of a, a child's or young adult's um, intellect, emotional responses, psychiatric uh, symptoms, and developing expertise in, in how to assess that, how to address it clinically. I think there's a huge opening and opportunity for that, um, for that kind of new uh, specialty to come up. And, it, and certainly, if indeed some of these novel experimental therapies, if they come to, to the clinic, I'm, that's certainly going to change the care model, where now we're going to have, for instance, if, if antisense ligamers work, we're going to be now giving intrathecal delivery at multiple centers across regions, how to integrate those care, how do we assess efficacy, you know, so I think there's an opportunity for even physical therapists, occupational therapists, speech pathologists to become um, critical members of that of that team, and I think there's some there's some need for that subspecialty expertise in that in that field as well. We'll return to the interview on the HD Insights podcast in a moment. We hope that you're enjoying this episode. As a nonprofit organization, the Huntington Study Group relies on the generous support from the community and listeners like you to continue bringing you in-depth content on HD, like this podcast series. If you like what you're hearing and are interested in supporting HD Insights through a grant or donation, please contact us through our email address, info at hsglimited.org, or by calling toll-free at 1-800-487-7671. We greatly appreciate your support. And now, back to our episode. I, I want to shift gears now and talk a little bit with you about HD Insights. So HD Insights is a semi-annual publication that the Huntington Study Group uh, has put out for a few years now, and it's really the kind of where this idea for a podcast was born out of, um, the, mm. the, the detailed content that came out of that publication. So you're currently serving as the, the chief editor um, for HD Insights. Um, tell, uh, tell the audience a little bit about your, your interest in the publication or, or you know, you know, publications in general, and specifically how you got involved in, into this role. Yeah, so I, I um, used to read HD Insights. Uh, it would come to me as a web click, and I'd click it, and I'd read interviews uh, with different um, 
people in the HD field. So uh, one day I got a phone call from Ray Dorsey, uh, and in his way he basically said, hey, I, I want you to think about becoming editor of HD Insights. And it's really hard to say no to Ray. Um, so I said, yeah. okay, uh, sure, but can I, can I change it? He said, absolutely, absolutely, change it whenever you want. So um, I, um, you know, from my perspective, I, I saw a need for, for HD Insights to, um, to address a wide kind of audience of healthcare providers as well as potentially interested patients to look at thematic concepts uh, that we're dealing with cont contemporary issues in Huntington's disease. And so while the, while the periodical was previously basically, you know, transcribed interviews, I really thought it could be fun to have um, a kind of a thematic periodical with perspectives around that theme from different um, people that, that may touch HD in different ways. So for instance, I feel like there's a great um, wealth of experience and um, expertise from clinical coordinators who see a lot of HD patients, and I'd love to hear what they wanted to s thought about a certain topic, or social workers, or um, clinicians who have been doing HD for 50 years, uh, or young starting out physicians. And so, the the initial goal of HD Insights was to pivot from just kind of a Here's a here's an interview and 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 it comes some of the great kind of summaries of of science to really kind of more thematic perspectives around a topic and so the first issue we did was on this issue of irritability um, in HD and we really took the the caregiver perspective the coordinator perspective we looked at a trial that looked at uh, irritability in Huntington sponsored by the NINDS and we had interviews with uh, Walter Koroshetz and and colleagues. Um, from from um, company that was working with with that trial, and then recently we we took on the issue of antisense ligamers, which which is which could probably be four issues, and maybe there'll be another one on it. Um, but really looking at you know what is a clinician's perspective. We've got a great article by, from Mark Upman on that one, just on his personal uh, experience, and Mark's a, a profoundly experienced uh, HD person, but he had to change his practice to look at how, do, how, do, at how does he as a neurologist become an expert in intrathecal drug delivery, and he talks in his article about this, and from a, a brand new social work intern, her first experience in HD social work and, and where the topic of ASOs came up and how did that, uh, how did that topic go over, how did she interpret that, so, and, and we have a number of other great, article, uh, great articles on this theme. So. That's where I, I view, that's how I got involved in HD Insights, and I think, you know, personally, we've, we've gotten so much great feedback from, from this approach that I'm really hopeful that this will kind of, um, kind of grow and, and just develop even better. Uh, I think ne the next uh, edition we're going to have is really going to be focused on kids, and so we're going to do a similar approach where we look at experts who take care of kids with HD or kids that are affected by HD, uh, and then other kind of perspectives around that. So, um, yeah, really, I, it's been a completely different um, kind of uh, experience for me. You know, because it's not it's not it's not scientific writing. It's not um, you're not writing for a journal in in a kind of a structured manner. You're really having to think creatively and 
um, thematically and really try and pick up as many perspectives as you can to, to have a product that looks pleasing to the eye that could be read by um, a wide variety of specialties and, and people. Um, so yeah, so it's been it's been a complete joy to do, and um, I hope it keeps getting better. Were there any surprises um, when you got into this? You know, t you know, taking over a publication like that for the first time, or you know, something that you, you know you go back to Ray Dorsey now and say, "Hey, you didn't tell me about this," or you know, something that you didn't anticipate that you've kind of learned along the way. Um, yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> there's a lot of things. One is you have to pay for things, <laughs> so you have to, you know, you know, you have to you, you have to advertise HD Insights, and we've gotten really great. Uh, sponsorships. I can't thank the companies enough for for investing uh, their their money in in supporting HD Insights. We've had just really great interactions with um, different uh, companies on on sponsoring this um, periodical. Um, I think you know getting people to write uh, is always hard. I kind of figured that would be hard, but you know sending 17 reminders. Hey, by the way, I need your your publication. Uh, submission last week. Uh, that's a challenge. Um, I think, I think just thinking creatively about how how something looks on paper. I think that's a, that was something I wasn't expecting, but that ended up being a lot of fun and working with our design artist on, on a concept. So that's been that's been fun. What's your what's your vision for HD Insights over the next two to three years? How, how do you see it evolving? Where, you know, where in your mind does this? you know, periodical fit into the overall landscape as a, a source of knowledge um, for the HD community? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a there's a whole bunch of different, um, you know, avenues of, of, of information streams right now for HD. I mean, there's HD Buzz, which is just amazing, and um, really taking kind of scientific concepts to to the to the uh, like a vernacular that that everyone can understand. So I mean, that's certainly that really need to keep that resource going. The internet, there's so many patients that come to our clinic, you know, learn about HD on the internet. There's different kind of chat forums and things like that. So you know, there, there's a lot of different ways that people can get information about HD. Personally, where I see HD insights going is that I feel like it's going to be a periodical that is going to be interesting to clinicians and healthcare providers. They're going to read it because they're just going to have fun reading it. You know, it's going to they they they're going to get perspectives from different people. They're going to it's going to cause them to think about uh, different issues. It's going to keep them up to date with contemporary issues regarding clinical trials. Um, we're finding out that a lot of patients actually enjoy reading it. At least a lot of patient caregivers. So it may be something that sits in the the waiting room. Of a clinic, uh, or it's easily accessible via clicking from from the community. Um, we've mostly focused on you know U.S. related uh, authors, but it could there could be potential that it becomes a little bit more international, which is always great. I think HD is just an international community, uh, and so really learning how to engage and get perspective and insights from our European colleagues will be a lot of fun as we go forward. Um, so I think. Uh, right now, two times per year. It may go more. I think the other part that's interesting to me is how we can engage um, uh, education days. So, you know, at Vanderbilt, we do an education day uh, once a year, and we have about 100, 150 people show up. But if there is a way that HD Insights could start providing patient-based um, 
information for those education days that are done by members of the HSG or other groups. I think that'd be one area that we see as potential uh, growth. Um, and I think also potential growth for, for dialogue and commentary, you know, other perspectives of HD that we don't typically uh, think about. I think there's a lot of opportunities for that. Well, you've done a, a fantastic job. The, you know, the look and feel of the publication has, has evolved tremendously. Um, and like you said, the thematic concept of each issue, you know, one story kind of building on the other or filling in the gaps that, you know, maybe the feature story didn't cover from a, a different person's uh, perspective. So I, I really uh, applaud you and commend you for the work that you've done on that. Um, and also, we appreciate your time on this podcast. But before you go, you know, I just want to wrap it up with something maybe a little, a little on the lighter side, a, a little on the, the personal side for you. Um, you know, we talked about golf and, uh, you know, your, your love of golf. So I wanted, to, I wanted to close and just get your thoughts on a few very, you know, quick-hitting questions, um, you know, rapid fire here from <laughs> you. So, okay. All right. So first of all, favorite golfer of all time? Um... Phil Mickelson. Is that uh, is that because uh, you're a lefty as well? Is that? Uh... <laughs> yeah, I just love watching him play. I think he's really he's uh, just a lot of fun to watch on the golf course. Yeah. All right. Uh, favorite course you've played? Favorite course I've played. Uh, I just did a vacation in uh, Colorado, and I played a, a mountain course, um, uh, Cordillera, which was amazing the views were just magnificent you hit a tee and you look over and you see these snow-capped mountains in in the in the distance it was just phenomenal all right bucket list course that you haven't played yet but w want to easy augusta national <laughs> figured um how about uh, as far as tournaments the most memorable tournament you've gone to as a spectator uh, I went to Augusta National for the Masters, and I saw um, uh, I saw another left-handed uh, golfer, Bubba, Bubba Watson, uh, win with just an amazing in a playoff with an amazing. Um, uh, he was in the rough, and he did this this hook onto the green on the tenth green. It was pretty amazing watching that happen. That's wild. Um, all right, so so you've been you've been to the Masters, so I figured that might have been the answer to this next question, but it can't be. So, <laughs> a bucket list tournament that you haven't gone to that you would like to get to? Yeah, I think the British Open next one we want to go to, uh, especially if it goes up to St Andrews. That'd be a lot of fun. Absolutely. And then finally, last question: uh, any any holes in one in your uh, in your playing career? No, but my son just got one about a month ago, and it really ticked me off because oh, now wow. he's gotten two, and I have zero. <laughs> Jeez. So, so he just beat you, and he has a hole in one. Um, so, but yeah. It's, it's got to be it's got to be rough living with him at this point. Yeah, yeah. He rubs it in every day. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Dr. Clausen, again, appreciate your time on the HD Insights podcast. Um, you know, we'll continue to look forward to some great episodes on this, but also the upcoming articles for the fall edition of the, the, uh, the periodical. Um, you know, thank you so much for joining us. Excellent, Kevin. And I think we're going to have a great podcast schedule in the future, and let's hope it's better than mine. <laughs> All right. We'll, we'll, we'll try and hold you to that. <laughs> All right. All right. All right. Talk soon. All right. Thanks. thanks. 
And that concludes our initial HD Insights podcast series. Again, my thanks go out to Dr. Daniel Clausen from Vanderbilt University for taking the time to talk about not only his background, his experience, but to really introduce you to the HD Insights experience. And that is our semi-annual publication from the Huntington Study Group, as well as the launch of this brand new podcast series. We really hope that this podcast series gives you insight into the people behind the research taking place in Huntington's disease. And we hope you'll join us for continued episodes. Please subscribe to the podcast series, rate, review, provide your feedback, suggest other potential topics uh, or people that you'd like to hear us interview, and we'll try and get that set up. But in the meantime, again, my name is Kevin Gregory. On behalf of the Huntington Study Group and HD Insights, thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the HD Insights podcast. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to make sure you automatically get the latest episodes to your device. Please rate and review this podcast with your feedback so we can continue providing the best possible content. If you are interested in providing financial support for the work needed to produce this content, you can do so by becoming an ongoing sponsor or through a tax-deductible donation. To do so, please email us at info at hsglimited.org. That's I-N-F-O at hsglimited.org. Or by calling our toll-free number at 1-800-487-7671. Thank you for joining us on the HD Insights Podcast from the Huntington Study Group.